Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Consciousness Review Radio, where we meet some of the amazing people whose books and films are inspiring a new story for humanity. I'm your host, Miriam Knight, and our guest today is Irvin Laszlo, a world-renowned philosopher of science, systems theorist, and integral theorist, as well as a classical pianist. He founded the Club of Budapest, an international think tank addressing humanity's greatest challenges. He was twice nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize and is the editor of World Futures, the General, Journal of General Evolution. He's also the Chancellor-designate of the newly formed Global Shift University and is the force behind the World Shift 2012 movement. A true citizen of the world, he is the author of over 80 books translated into 21 languages, and he lives in Italy. Today we are going to focus on the book he edited with Alan Combs called Thomas Berry, Dreamer of the Earth, The Spiritual Ecology of the Father of Environmentalism. It contains tw 10 essays by eminent philosophers, thinkers, and scientists, and focuses on the environmental and social crises facing humanity and the urgent need for a massive paradigm shift. Dr. Irvin Laszlo, welcome to New Consciousness Review. And Miriam, I'm delighted to be here with you. You know, I'm so pleased to be talking to you because I don't think there's anyone on the planet who has articulated what I envision the new consciousness to be as well as you have. Let's start well, by... Happy. Sorry. I said I'm happy to hear that because uh, I've been... Nobody really knows what consciousness is, but I've been working about, worrying about that, thinking about that for quite a long time. And I've come to some insights anyway that I'm always happy to share. That's exactly my feeling as I've tried to articulate what New Consciousness Review is about. It's, it's sort of a process of successive approximations. Anyway, let's start with Thomas Berry. Could you please tell us um, what was the legacy that you have honored in this book? Well, Thomas Berry is a remarkable person. He was born in the beginning of the 20th century. He lived throughout the 20th, 20th century. And he was ahead of his times by at least 30, 40 years because he foresaw the environmental problem. He foresaw an ecological crisis. He saw the cause of the problems and he could also put his finger on the cure. He was absolutely a remarkable person, an insightful man. He was an ordained priest, actually, but at the same time, an eminent scientist and teacher. So he was a person who was a very much of an integral thinking, a full thinking, left and right hemisphere brain on both sides, both rational, intuitive knowledge. And he had a remarkable presentiment, a remarkable foreknowledge of the problems that we are facing today. Mm -hmm. His life's work revolved around both the ecological and the spiritual challenges facing humanity. He called himself a geologian. What did he mean by that? Well, because he is working on the geology of the planet. He, is, he was working on the idea that any logos, any logic has to take into account 
the full geology of the planet, the full uh, situation in which we find ourselves. So logos is always the rational, it's the word, it's the logic. But in this case, the geologos is something where this logic, this word is applied to the planet in its integral wholeness. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that he was a former priest. I, I spoke to uh, Matthew Fox last week, who also has an essay in the book. It's um, interesting that both of these priests have come around to such a holistic point of view. Barry talks about a new story for humanity, but he didn't believe that money and technology alone could solve our problems. Where do you think we should look for the answers? Well, I think it's when we talk about consciousness, certainly that's, that's the crux of the matter. Money and technology, sure, that's important, but what money does is generates more money. That has become the function of money, unfortunately, instead of generating well-being. I mean, to some extent it can, of course, but the main function of money now is for those who hold it, uh, is to make more money. It's just to become a very self-centered, self-producing, self-reproducing kind of a cancerous growth in, in the culture of humanity. And technology, you know, it's technology is very important, of course. But in 1968, there was a nice slogan among students who said, sure, technology is the answer, but what is the question? So what mm -hmm. we have to really to ask ourselves, to what do we want to apply technology? Certainly, there are technological solutions, but I don't believe that there are technological fixes. Technology will never solve all our problems. Technology is a tool, just as well as a hammer is a tool and a screwdriver. Technology can be a very much more powerful, sophisticated tool, but it is still something in our hand that we should be using to be our servant. And whereas it often, very often, it becomes our master. Well, sometimes it becomes an excuse as well. So I, I, I've heard people talk about um, using oil uh, in this profligate manner on the assumption that technology will come up with a solution as we get down to the line. Well, it's always a very nice dream that, sure, technology will solve our problems or business will solve our problems or, or perhaps somebody knows what's wrong and will fix it. Uh, the fact of the matter is that the future and, and our, uh, the solution to our problems is in our hands and the hands of people everywhere because it's the people themselves who are using the resources, who are ultimately deciding which technologies get applied and, and get funded and how we use them. So it's not elsewhere. The, the buck doesn't go any further. It stops with us. It's our, our consciousness, it's our values, it's our thinking that is, makes the difference. And technology is something that we can use for our best insight, but very often we are using it to our worst insight. For example, it shows the nuclear disaster in Japan, showed that over or over, overdue reliance on a technology can be a, a, a two-edged sword. And that's we're beginning to learn. I think it's an important lesson. Absolutely. You believe that we're very close to the tipping point of global and environmental and social destruction. How far along do you think we are and how much time do you think we have to effect change before it is irreversible? 
Well, that's a very good question. I don't think anybody really knows the answer. This is such a complex system. If you take human society together with its environment and, and the biosphere, then, you know, it's a very complex system. And it's reaching a point where its stability is seriously in question. It's, the, it's undergoing sort of fluctuations and, and uh, changes that are very difficult to pull back to normalcy. And perhaps we shouldn't even try to pull them back, but we should try to go further uh, to promote a new uh, positive change. So we don't know when this kind of irreversible point is going to arise, but yet we do know that it's within a finite time, within the lifetime of most people alive today. I would think so. But it may be, it may be as close as at the end of 2012. It is entirely possible. Yes. You talk about the problems being part of a complex system, and, and one of your um, areas of expertise is uh, systems theory and inter integral theory. Um, I think it is so important that a voice like yours is heard because we, as a society and, and, and in technology, we tend to look at the individual components rather than into their interrelationship. Um, just expand on, on the importance of viewing a system as a whole. Well, you know, it's a very different paradigm, the analytic, mechanistic paradigm from the integral, holistic one. Underlying this difference is really an assumption of the nature of things. The analytic way of thinking is really a separation of thinking. It's also called reductionist because you reduce everything to the simplest components or to the most immediate perception of the problem. But um, besides that, it really assumes that everything is separate so that you can look at one thing in its own way, uh, in itself, and then you can first calculate which way it relates to another thing. This is A, how does it relate to B and to C, and then you separate each thing and you try to work out the better relationship, you know, so, if at all, because you most of the time concentrate on this kind of analytic paradigm, the reductionist atomistic paradigm, concentrate on one thing at a time. And that's sort of like looking at a tree and not seeing the forest. Mm -hmm. The other way of thinking, you see, the new paradigm, I think the holistic paradigm, which is new only in the sense that it's new in the science, but it has been as old as human culture and civilization because already the Greeks, the Egyptians have been thinking in a, basically in a holistic manner. But the other way of thinking is based on an, on an insight, which is very true and which is now recognized in the sciences, that a thing is not what it is in itself. A thing, whether it's a human being, or a molecule, or a cell, or an ecology, or, or, or whatever. A thing is what it is because of its relations, and through its relations to others. We are literally constituted by the relationships that we have. We, are, we have a basic potential, a potentiality on our DNA, then we grow up, into the, get born into this world, and like all other things, we are constantly surrounded practically bombarded by, by information, by energies, by substances, and we grow and we try to maintain our identity 
in the face of this constant relational onslaught, as it were. So we become what we are because the way we relate to other things. So if you want to know what you and I are, what anyone is, it's not enough just to look at that person on ourselves individually. We have to look at ourselves in the context of society, context of the environment, in the context perhaps even of an evolving cosmos, because everything in this world is changing. So this is an insight, you know, that has been already championed in the 1920s by Alfred Morse Whitehead, the great philosopher, who said that what he called an actual event or actual entity, so one thing, you know, is really constituted by the sum of its relations to all other things. And Barry himself, you know, was very much of a Whitehead-ian thinker. All ecology is based on this notion that things are created jointly. Things don't evolve. Things co-evolve, co-develop. It's a very different way of looking at things, a very much more appropriate to the times in which we live. Absolutely fascinating. No man is an island. Dr. Laszlo, in a recent blog of yours, you suggest that our aim should be to restabilize our natural systems rather than trying to change them, but that our human systems require a fundamental transformation. What did you mean by that? Well, I'd like to, I wanted to call attention to a, a basic misunderstanding. We try to do precisely the wrong thing, you know. Uh, we have, are living in two in the intersection of two vast systems, nature, the biosphere, you know, the web of life, and on the other hand, human society with its technologies, with its relationships, with all the information that it produces. These two systems no longer mesh very well together. It's a problem. Now, something has to change to re-establish this mesh, this match, so that we can live well in our surroundings. What we are doing is precisely, very often, just the opposite of what needs to be done. We talk about restabilizing some of our net, some of our social systems. For example, when there's a financial crisis or a threat of a financial crisis, then we talk about putting in more money uh, so that the banks don't go under, so that the institutions can stay afloat, uh, so that things can 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 continue working, and so that mm -hmm. we restabilize basically a system that is already out of mesh, out of sync with the basic life support of, of human survival on the planet. On the other hand, we often try to change the balances, change the processes of nature by genetic engineering, by, by, uh, by, many, by inserting a lot of chemicals into the environment, changing the balances, changing even the thermal equilibrium around it. So I say, you know, let's be very clear. What we need to stabilize is our natural system because that's the system that gives us the possibility, gives us the resources, gives us the framework within which we can live as a biological organism. Of course, we are much more than a biological or organism, but if we don't survive as a biological organism, we can't very well become spiritual beings unless, you know, of course, you go into the idea of, of, a, of a, a, a transpersonal or beyond, the, beyond death or beyond the brain kind of consciousness. That's another matter. But for the time being, we need to survive as 7 billion human beings on this planet. And for that, we need to maintain the system 
with its equilibria, safeguard it, be its wardens, as it were, and not try to push it to an, another kind of uh, equilibrium, which could very well come about, but is not likely to be favorable to human beings. And, and we can talk about that too, but I think that's fairly obvious. On the other hand, the system that we have created now in the past, God knows, 50, 100 years, are such that it's more and more divorced from the natural system, more and more working, going on its own way, more and more centered on its own reproduction, both in terms of wealth and of people, more and more acting in the framework of the natural system, more and more acting like a cancer, which is just reproducing itself. So if you try to stabilize that, then we are basically just postponing a crisis, postponing a collapse, and making it more difficult, finally, to cope with, because all the processes keep going in the meanwhile. So I say very clearly, let's try to transform our social, cultural, financial system, the way we behave, and let's try to stabilize and safeguard the nat natural systems, which have been around us for hundreds of millions of years, and which give us the basic life support we need to survive. Do you have a sense of priorities among the different issues that need to be addressed? Are some more critical than others? First of all, I think we have got to stop using dangerous technologies. That's been illustrated now very, very recently. Uh, we have got to use things that are not altering even actually or potentially. These, those basic balances on which our life depends. Well, that not only means a, a nuclear meltdown, for example, but it also means injecting, as I use it just as an, as an example, but as a major example, injecting more energy into the, into the biosphere. Now, you know, there's a lot of energy in the biosphere. It comes from the sun. It's said there's 40 minutes of solar radiation around the equator, you know, it would 100% used, exploited, would be sufficient to cover mankind's commercial energy needs for one year. Because we are very far from using 100%, but we could use a fraction, a little fraction more than what we are using already. Now, the interesting thing is that when you use an energy that already comes to us, that's an inflow of energy, whether directly or indirectly, through wind or, 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 or uh, rivers or rain patterns or whatever else, um, when we're using that, we are not adding to the energy household of the, of the biosphere. On the other hand, when we're injecting fossil energy, sure, that also came from solar energy, but it came hundreds of thousands of years ago, and it was under the sand all this time. And we are injecting that, then we're injecting something additional. That's heating it up. We're taking nuclear energy, even geothermal energy. is You're picking up something that is not part of the web of life. So we should be careful, I think. Um, that's one of the very crucial issues, not to change the balances on which our life depends. And by injecting energy or injecting substances such as chemicals, even plastic bottles, nobody thought it would be such a dangerous thing. But now it turns out that the Indian Ocean and, and part of the Pacific is just full of plastic, which is, mm. is ruining a, a large portion of the marine life in those areas. So uh, we, every time we inject something that is not part of nature, we are interfering with it. So let's be careful. Let's be part of that and a productive, evolutionary, progressive part 
of these great web of life and not something that is destroying its essential balances. Mm -hmm. You have said that the enormous challenges that humanity is currently facing can only be overcome through the development of a global cultural consciousness. I was wondering if you see the seeds of this germinating in the current political unrest around the world. Well, not so much in the political arena. A political arena is always very difficult because it always goes down to the lowest common denominator of what is popular and what, what uh, will sell sort of in terms of the people's ex acceptance and appreciation. But what I see is rising spot-wise here and there, increasingly there are centers of consciousness arising that people are asking themselves what is happening with us no longer conceiving the world as practically infinite and not of our business. Now we are looking at beginning to look, more and more people beginning to look at the world as really as their business, as our community, our planet, and asking, what are we doing that is becoming so full of crisis and, and becoming so threatening and changing it? And that is sort of this arise or this arousal or awakening of a new consciousness is, some, is among the most positive signs of our time. And I see it anywhere. I've been in China about 10 days ago still, and then I've been in France and now in Italy. Wherever I go, people are asking themselves this question and are beginning to perceive themselves as a member of a planetary species. Some people did that before, but they were exceptional. Now it, it's becoming a... a entering more and more into the mainstream of society. And that is a very, very positive sign. I couldn't agree more. Barry, Thomas Berry talks about accessing the dream state, and you talk about accessing the Akashic field as the way to shift our consciousness. Tell us why this is important and how, how can we go about it? That means accessing our intuitions. Accessing insight as it's coming to us. And it's very interesting that uh, when Einstein uses this word insight, of course his native language is German, and in German in insight is Einfall, which means literally falling in, Einfall, you know? And this is, this is a kind of a falling in that comes to us spontaneously. Artists and poets, spiritual people, of course, are relying on this because to them, this information, these these uh, these intuitions come spontaneously, and they appreciate it and they make use of it. In the business world, in the political world, and in the everyday world, in in Western world, uh, especially, we tend to disregard this. We tend to say this is, if at all, it's illusion. But we. To the extent we disregard it uh, because we believe that it doesn't exist, we suppress it to such an extent that it doesn't even reach our, our consciousness, or very seldom, sometimes in dream states it does. So in the Western world, in, modern, in the modern mind, we practically have to enter what is known as an altered state of consciousness you know, to access our intuitions, to access what is coming into us. It's another question, you know, that we can talk about, if you like, is that I believe that what is coming to us is reality. It's through a quantum uh, process. It's coming, actually, it is a real perception of the world. It's not just the imagination or fantasy. But the fact is that our intuitions, which are, were so strong and so natural, kept us within the bounds of nature, within the bounds of viability, 
of sustainability in traditional societies. We always see this in traditional societies. People intuitively value their environment, the cosmos. And we have suppressed this. And to recover this, we have to enter what Barry called the dream state, but you can call it a meditative state, a psychiatrist called it an altered state of consciousness, a state where the, uh, on the EEG electroencephalograph patterns, more the alpha and even the theta deep wave patterns are coming to the fore, where, where we are becoming intuitive and where our connections to the world and to each other becoming more evident to us. So getting back to this state, I think, is one of the key elements. The other one, of course, the rational knowledge and in, uh, rational uh, information that we know we have to change. But this kind of intuitive approach to the world, the feeling approach, is a high road, is a very important way to uh, enable us to adapt to the new reality of being an, an endangered species and becoming, again, a natural positive species. Okay, we're talking about the accessing our intuition. This is a bit like the left brain, right brain dichotomy, isn't it? Yes, it is, absolutely. We need more of the right brain to use more of our right brain to be in touch with our intuitions and through the, our intuitions with the world around us. Part of that is um, trusting our intuition because we're, we've been so alienated from ourselves and so subservient to the rule of the mob and to the rule of authority. Uh, it, part, of, part of this is getting us to think for ourselves, isn't it? Yes, it is. It is. Um, we are a natural being. We are, one, uh, we are a transceiver. Our brain, let's say, is a transceiver. That's what to use an information technology kind of a term, which is not the best, but it, it, it does the job. Namely, that we are constantly picking up, receiving information, receiving intuitions, receiving sensations, receiving feelings from the world around us. And we are constantly processing it and are also emitting it so that the world receives from us all this multiplex, all this multitude of different kinds of wavelengths and different kinds of sensations. So we are not a separate kind of a brain enclosed in our, in our, uh, in our cranium, but we are a constantly switched in kind of a system that's constantly receiving, elaborating, and emitting what we just call in general terms information, but it's much more than that. It's also intuition, it's feeling, it's insight, it's all of that. So I think to realize this and to live up to this, it's important. It's important because if we think that the only way we can get information from the world is through our eyes and through the, uh, our rational, logical elaboration, two and two is four, and that kind of a rational rationalization of what we see, then we are impoverishing our, our, our knowledge, our consciousness, because this is only very much of a part of our total consciousness. Our consciousness is much richer than those sensory data that come to us, and we can do much more with it than simply elaborating according to some rules of logic or, or, or mathematics. You're a classical pianist. You were a child prodigy, and you're, you're still uh, creating uh, recordings. Tell us what your view of the role of the arts is in our society. Well, in a single word, perhaps, is, or a single phrase, is the search for harmony. 
It's very interesting, if I may add, I was about 10 days ago in China uh, doing the uh, keynote, the closing keynote to what the Chinese call the World Cultural Forum. You know, every year there's the World Economic Forum in Switzerland and Davos, and now the Chinese decided to put up a counterpart. And they've been talking all along for this two-day meeting uh, with, with about a thousand invited people there, with a very large-scale meeting, um, with the top political leadership present as well. Um, they were talking about the tradition of China for seeking harmony. And I said in my closing address, yes, this tradition of seeking harmony should be applied now to, to the diversity of cultures in the world. The cultures, cultural diversity is an asset, is important, but it is like in music. It's made up of many different notes, many different sounds, many different patterns of rhythm and, and, uh, and harmonic relationships. So it's not a question of dominating and trying to impose a single culture. It's a question of finding the unity, finding the harmony among all the different diverse cultures of the world. And that's exactly what music does. That's exactly what art does. I think art, at least the kind of art to which I respond, to which I find, where I find inspiration, is the kind which shows you almost a supreme cosmic harmony, something where things all work together, all reinforce each other, all become one totality, you know, which, which dynamically moves forward. And that is the experience one has in playing music, in performing music. That is, I think, the experience one has if one listens to great art, to great music, one beholds a great uh, fine art uh, works, uh, or sees dance or theater, whatever. This supreme harmony coming through the various great diversity of these elements. So that's something we have to learn from. We have to use art to, um, to maintain, to search for the unity and the diversity by searching for the harmony among all the diverse elements. Oh, that's so beautifully put. You remind me of a group called Playing for Change. Have you ever heard their recordings? They, I, uh, yes, I think I did, yes. They went around the world and they recorded the same song in about 30 different countries around the world, and then they integrated the pieces, both audio and video, to create a seamless uh, production. And you see all of these different cultures, all these different instruments, faces, tonalities, coming together in exactly the kind of harmony you're describing. Just beautiful. And that is a wonderful, a wonderful experiment. I am involved in something that I don't know very much about yet, but I'll find out more next week. Uh, the, in Switzerland, there's a group that is trying to put together uh, from by translating from the atomic table of, of the uh, atomic uh, substances and for various uh, cosmological. Uh, mathematical factors try to put together the cosmic harmony, the relationships among things among in nature, in the cosmos. And uh, they are putting up a choir. They are creating a large-scale choir, about a thousand people, singing these kind of relationships, the tones. And it's supposed to be, it, and I assume that it will be, because I'm, I'm looking forward to it, a, a kind of a harmony that will really be putting, helping you to put you in touch with yourself, 
by creating this a higher level of consciousness and listening to it. I'm looking forward to it. I'm supposed to be appearing, although I won't really be that. I'm really appearing as, as if I was conducting that. I'll be listening to it, of course, and I'm very happy to promote this kind of ideas. But it is, again, the same thing. You know, looking whether it's human culture or whether it's nature, looking for the way harmony really works, and then trying to put it together in such a way that we can perceive it. We can see it in art, we can hear it in music, we can perceive it in dance and the theater in all kinds of ways. Your book, World Shift 2012, calls for moving out of the limited consciousness of competition into a holistic consciousness of connection. I wanted to know if this was the impetus for starting the World Shift movement that is linked from your website. It is the same idea. It's an, a very much of a common sense idea. It's the idea that we need to change, and we can only change if we all get together and want the same thing. Not by flattening the diversity, not by becoming uniform, but by, by cooperating with each other. There are some basic things that we need to achieve in a world shift. And I think those basic things are to maintain our spaceship, which is planet Earth, maintain it in working orders for ourselves and for our children and for our grandchildren. And the world shift movement means, to my mind, is to create that recognition, create that awareness, that kind of consciousness, which tells us that, yes, the future is in our hands, we can move toward a world where people cooperate in, cooperate in the joint interest. Yes, there's competition, sure, there will always be conflict to some extent, but it mustn't break apart the, the, uh, the basic dynamic, the framework within which we live and work and exist. So uh, the world just is to create the kind of consciousness of us as human beings in our planetary home, where we can live, where we can survive, and where we can co-evolve one with the other. That, I think, is sort of the great critical mission, the great task awaiting our generation. Mm. When I was studying psychology, I uh, learned that aversive conditioning can be done in one shot, whereas positive reinforcement takes many, many iterations. Um, I'm wondering if, the, um, if a focus on the threats uh, facing our society, particularly the environmental threats, um, is uh, possibly more powerful a motivator for people coming together than the, um, the attraction of artistic harmony. Well, you know, the carrot and the stick. I mean, we need both. We need to know about the dangers. We know about the positive futures that we could have. Uh, but crisis is a wonderful teacher because a crisis is what the Chinese have known already for thousands of years, is both danger and opportunity. Mm -hmm. It's the, the danger of a breakdown, but the opportunity of a breakthrough. The two are, the two are strictly related. You can't fundamentally change a, a system that is very much preserving itself, defending itself, that is very dynamically stable. So a dynamically stable is fine, then it means it works. But our system is not dynamically stable. It does need to be changed, and it can be changed. 
So now we have to know both elements. We have to know, yes, this system is on the point of a major, uh, whether it's breakdown or breakthrough, we don't know, but a major change. It's a tipping point. And sure, that's a wake-up sign. That's a wake-up indicator as well. But we have to know that this tipping point is not the end of the road. It could be the beginning of the new road. Uh, it's been very well said, and I like to repeat that, that uh, our generation has this unique privilege of being able to decide whether it's the last generation of a world that's going down the drain or is the first generation of a new world that is really rising up. And we really are at that point. And the motivation is both. You can't keep on as you are, so you've got to change. And you can change to, to the better. You can do something positive. We can create a better world. We have the money, we have the technology, we have the knowledge. Uh, we have all the means possible for 7 billion people or 8 or even, I believe, up to 10 billion people to live in reasonable well being on this planet. What we don't have is the unity and the wisdom and the vision to be able to do the right things and do them together. Well, it's the attitude of the zero-sum game. If, if um, you get more, I get less, rather than enlarging the pie for all. That's a big mistake to believe that evolution works with zero sums. I mean, we would still be back to the blue-green algae level that we would never be developing into complex organisms. To become more complex, to evolve, means always taking a chance. It's always the chance that I can win and you can win too. My, my world around me wins. Because if I win at the expense of the world around me, Sooner or later, we are going to create an untenable situation. We can only evolve if we co-evolve with the world around us. That means we are enlarging the chips. We get more and more chips. It's not a zero-sum game. It's a very much of a positive-sum game. And that has been, nature has been playing that game for hundreds of millions of years. And if we now only playing a negative or a zero-sum games, always playing out against each other, playing our win to your loss, then we are impoverishing it and, and sterilizing this game and making it, pushing it into a very dangerous direction. So how do we propagate this mindset? Well, partly rationally, partly know that we can do it. There are new manage management techniques, there are new pol political systems, there are information systems, there are alternative uses of money, whatever wherever you look. There, are, there is knowledge, there is information. We know that there is that incredible amounts of money circulating on this globe. They are being used to create debt. They are, they are being stockpiled. They are being put into creating our, our just uh, weapons of whether mass destruction or just local destruction, but enormous sums are spent on that. We have the money where we could create well-being for all people. We, ha we have the energy because we are exposed to this in incredible inflow of radiation from our sun that we could use in so many different ways. And we could use it in a decentralized way, not by creating enormous centers that are, uh, that are uh, you know, risking to, uh, at risk of breaking down, but being working ourselves locally into our environment and living sustainably. We can do all that. 
it's entirely possible, and I described it in my book on Worship 2012 also, how by 2032 we could be creating a world based on different technologies, and based on different political systems, on different value systems, above all, you know, and a, and a better consciousness. That's all possible. That's the positive side. We can do it, and we also have to know that we better do it. It's not an option. We have to do it, because if we don't change in a positive way, then we would really break down, and that would become a very serious a catastrophe for the human community. What is the most positive thing that an individual could do to help? Try to live in a way that others can live as well on this planet. It's, it's a very simple rule. It's an ethical rule. It's not necessarily have to live, everybody has to live the same way. But we have to live in a way that it doesn't detract from the chances of other people to live and to live well. We not, mustn't overuse uh, the resources of our planet. We mustn't use uh, things that and energies or, or, or resources or processes that are, that are not available to others, that are, wouldn't, wouldn't be available. Just a very simple example. If we're having a very, very basic, uh, heavy uh, red meat-based diet, the amount of energy, the amount of water we would need on this planet to provide this kind of a diet for 7 billion people would literally call for two other planets the size of Earth. You know? So we have to live in a way that allows, gives a possibility for everybody to live. If you ask yourself, what am I do what I am doing today? Is it something that other people could also be doing without breaking apart our system, without exploding this uh, human planetary system? If you ask yourself that, you'll find the solutions. We have all the solutions in front of us. We know how to save energy. We know how to live sustainably. We know how to work uh, together with other people in our community. It's all that knowledge is around. We just have to open up our eye. So try to live in a way that other people can also live, then you're living like an ethical, responsible human being. It's the best thing we can do. And I think it would even be enough if everybody would try to do that, because then we could have enough of everything to go around. Well, that, that really is a message that we all need to take to heart. I understand that you are working on your autobiography, which is soon coming from Hay House. What is it called? Well, it's actually will be published on the 20th of June, uh, and it's a series of tales from my life. The first tale, you know, I started out, you mentioned that yourself, I started out in music, I was a child prodigy, and the first tale is, uh, is, is the story of my wanting to play a piece on the piano, a, a very serious piece by, by Ludwig van Beethoven, and everybody said, that's crazy, why should a child, a 10-year-old child, want to learn that? And I insisted until my mother finally took me to a famous professor to listen to me and, and ask what his opinion. And this professor, actually, as it so happened, he just stood up, threw up his hands, and he says, well, that's simply genius. So uh, then uh, my publisher said that, okay, let's give that as a title of the book. It's certainly the title of one of the stories in the book. So now it's called Simply Genius, Tales from My Life. You know? Uh-huh. And that's coming out June 20th? 
It's been for, formally published, yes, in I mean, New York City and creating a, doing a series of interviews on serious radio uh, with Deepak Chopra and doing a number of, of nationwide uh, TV and, 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 and radio shows. Uh, because it's a series of stories that are entertaining in themselves. They are, it's not a serious autobiography, which of documents on June 12, on, on June 11th, I did this, and on the 16th, I did that. It's, it's stories, you know, because uh -huh. I started out as a pianist. I went into, into uh, I did quite a good career worldwide, and then I went into science and philosophy. I taught at, at various universities in the U.S. And, and, and the Far East, also and in Europe. Then I went to the UN and was running research projects there. And then I, I founded the Club of Budapest and the World, now the World Shift Network. So I've done many different kinds of things. And I kind of followed my intuition. And this is the story of how somebody who lets his intuition uh, pave the way and, and allows it to, to be a guide for his life, how that works out. And it worked out in a very interesting way. I enjoyed it. It's fun. It was fun. It is fun. And I hope people who read it will also find that it's fun to read. Well, I look forward to reviewing it. So how do listeners learn more about your work and uh, possibly about the World Shift initiatives? Well, it's a simple way, yes, just to use my name, which is Irvin Laszlo. You can use www.irvinlaszlo.com. And then you'll find a lot of information, but you can go from there, you can click left and right, and you can go to different uh, projects, different sites, which keep us not, uh, it's not an autarchic kind of a, a site where you're just talking about myself. I try to talk about the world and I try to bring in my partners and my associates and like-minded people so that we can get some information about what goes on in the world, what are positive things that are happening, toward creating the kind of shift we need to create a livable, sustainable, and peaceful world. That's what the idea behind World Shift is. Well, I've been to the website and I warmly recommend it to everyone. <clears throat> Let me just reiterate that uh, Dr. Laszlo's website is irvinlaszlo.com and that's spelled E-R-V-I-N-L-A-S-Z-L-O.com. So, we have been uh, speaking with Dr. Laszlo about his book, Thomas Berry, Dreamer of the Earth, which you can find on our website and at irvinlaszlo.com. So, that leaves me to thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Laszlo. It has truly been an honor. Well, Miriam Knight is so good to talk with you. It's so wonderful that to talk with somebody who already is so well informed and so deeply committed to these ideas and to these ideals. So let's hope that with, that with your work, with your listeners, you're carrying this world toward a positive world shift. I'm sure you do. Thank you. Well, that's it for this week. I'm Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.